God Almighty, we ask now that you would grant us grace as we delve into your work. We ask that you would show us the truths of your word, that you would nourish our spirits, heal our emotions, and enlighten our minds so that we can understand who you are and who we are in you. Oh Lord, grant me as I speak the grace that I need to do so. And grant my brothers and sisters as they hear the grace that they need to do so. In your precious and most holy name we ask this. Amen. As I mentioned a few moments ago, I'm really digging into the Sermon on the Mount, taking small pieces of the passage and preaching on them uh, once a week, sometimes uh, in two weeks. And very soon we'll be coming up to the passage of the Lord's Prayer, just to give you a little bit of a, not an advertisement, but a little headline. And I'm going to really be digging into the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to be doing a sermon on each uh, part of the Lord's Prayer, so that will take a good eight or nine weeks. That's why I wanted to do the readings from the narrative sections. It would be silly to just read one verse to you for the next uh, eight or nine weeks. And in Matthew 5, which we finished last week, I easily could have preached Matthew 5 in about three sermons because those antitheses that Christ is saying, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, they're really a part of a whole. They're dealing with one particular thing, that the people of God, that the covenant people of God, must live categorically different lives than the unbelievers around them, as a group and as individuals, and that we must live for God and stand out from the crowd. But I didn't want to just whisk through it. I wanted to dig into each one of those antitheses so we could really feel the full import of it. But I felt it necessary to do rather a review of all of Matthew 5 very quickly today as a sort of wrap-up so you can see the unity of the passage as opposed to seeing it just as little pieces of a whole. I want you to see the whole. And what I want you to understand today is that a Christian, and the Christian church has a very special destiny. We have a destiny to be the people of God. Have you ever just for a moment thought about that? Many of us wonder at times what it would be like to be the son or the daughter of someone famous or powerful. I remember the last time the Queen of England came to our shores, I was dumbfounded at um, the splendor that she comes with and of course obviously the great security and I remember wondering wow, what would it be like to be her grandson and I realized well maybe not all that swift because you live in a fishbowl your entire life and you have people snapping photographs at you but we often wonder what would it be like to be the son or the daughter of someone very rich what would it be like to be the son or the daughter of someone very powerful or preferably both might come with some perks, we think. There would certainly be sacrifices, but there has to be some perks to that. Well, if that's the case, can you imagine what the perks are being a child of a living God, of being part of the Church of Christ, of being part of the covenantal people of God? There is no one more powerful or rich than God Almighty. There is not a human being on earth that can touch him. That's what Eliphaz was getting at in the reading from Job. That God alone is immortal. We are mortal. We will fade from the face of this earth eventually. He will not. He's not created from dust. 
His spirit is not housed in the house of clay. We walk through this life born of the dust with feet of clay and sometimes those feet get wet. They get muddy. They get dirty. He alone is pure and holy and good. But as Christians we are brought into his church. We are brought into his family and receive derivative holiness from him and power from him and glory from him. All of that is to be reflected back to him and for him, but it is real. If you're a Christian, you are a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So all of those old habits, all of those old inclinations, they cannot be with you any longer. They have got to go. That's one of the primary things that Christ is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, is that God is not at all interested in our formal professions of faith. Anybody can be taught to say the Apostles' Creed. Anybody can be taught the required answers for a church membership class. Anybody can be taught those answers. To be able to mime them, to mimic them. What Christ is after is our hearts. Our very beings. He wants our obedience to his law to not be formal. To not be just based on the traditions of men. Or to be based on the traditions of uh, the covenant people. As we accrue things as the years go by. He wants our heart. He wants our obedience to come from a heart of thankfulness and love. When we realize what he has done for us and who he actually is. So if you are a Christian today, you have a special destiny. We have to ask, well, what is that destiny? It's to be part of the people of God. Yes, each of you has an individual path to walk. Each of us does. That's obvious. No one can learn lessons for another person. And as parents, very often we want to do that. We wish that we could learn lessons for our children because we don't want to see them go through pain. Right? the big lessons of life. We don't want to see their hearts broken. We don't want to see their dreams dashed. Very often we say, Lord, if you want to dash my dreams, go ahead, but please grant my children passage through this one. But we can't. Eventually they fall and scrape their knees and get hurt. We have to let them do it. But we are not just individuals. We, you derive your identity not from your name and not from your standing as an individual, but from your membership in God's covenant people. That's where we derive our individual identities and that's who we actually are. And our destiny is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Now, when Christ goes to the... When we look in chapter 5, Christ begins with those Beatitudes. Those... those blessings that come. And they are very different from the world. The poor in the spirit. Mourning. The gentle. Listen, the gentle and the mourning and the poor in spirit are not valued by the world. The world does not value gentleness. The world values aggressiveness. The world values violence. The world values anger. The world values conquest. 
Christ is here saying, blessed are the gentle, just to look at one of them. Why? For they shall inherit the earth. Not the mighty, not the aggressive, not the violent, not the rich, not the powerful. They will not inherit the earth. The gentle will. And then he continues. And what we see here with these blessings is two things. One, that God is not an ogre in the sky. Yes, he is terrible in his judgments. And he will by no means acquit those who are guilty. We saw that in that reading from Thessalonians. God will send a spirit of strong delusion upon unbelievers. We often hear people say, well, Christ used parables to speak to people so that they would understand. Well, actually, it's rather the opposite. If you look at Jesus' explanation of the parables, he said, to you who are on the inside has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to those on the outside, they won't understand. That's why I'm speaking to them in parables. That's a prophecy from the book of Isaiah. Christ's teaching was very misunderstood. It ran counter to the culture, and it still runs counter to the culture today. But we see here that God is a God who blesses. The word blessed means to be made happy, to make joyful, to have that deep joy in our hearts and in our spirits from the living God. And we see that God is capable and willing of doing this blessing, and there's the actual reality of being able to receive it. You can receive God's blessing, you just have to go about things His way. If you're going to play football, it does you no good to dress up in a baseball uniform. You look odd, and you'll get hurt, and you're not allowed to use a bat on a football field. It's really against the rules. So if you want to receive God's blessing, it has got to be done God's way. makes perfect sense. We do that in our own homes. A child will come to a parent and say, well, Jimmy and Jack and Jill are all doing this. And we'll say, well, they don't live under my roof. It's my roof, my rules. Every parent has said something like this. As soon as you start paying the bills, champ, you can make your own rules until that mystical, magical day, I am in charge. It's just that simple. You may not like it. You just have to do it. And by the way, I'd like you to do it with a smile on your face. But after the Beatitudes... I'd like you to look in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. The city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. I need to point out something to you here. I'm not going to give you a grammar lesson. This is in the plural. The you is a yins for us Western Pennsylvanians. It's a y'all if you're down south. It's to us. So, this idea, when you take the little children's limerick, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine, let it shine, that's nice, perfectly fine. Sing it at VBS Bible School, no problem. A little problem with that little limerick, though. The light isn't little. The light's not little. It's blazing. It's blinding. It's like halogen lights on steroids that, that light up the whole world. Think of it. It's God's light. How bright is the light of God? How dark is darkness? It's pitch black. What does John say in his prologue? The light has come into the world. But men rejected the light because they dwelt in darkness 
and their deeds were evil. You understand you can't measure darkness? It doesn't exist. You can only measure light. You can't make darkness go away. You just bring light in. So the light of the world is big and bold and blazing. And that little limerick, this little light of mine, hmm, one, it's not little. Two, it's not yours. It's God's. And it's given to his covenant people. What he's saying here is you are the light of the world. The church is the light of the world. And each particular church is a manifestation of that light wherever God has planted it. That's one reason why we support missionaries. Because we want to spread the light throughout the world. And we don't have the physical capability um, to go to India, for instance. We could, but those short-term mission trips don't do very much good, to be honest with you. They help at times. And you probably don't have the time or inclination, or many of us don't have the ability, to learn an Indian dialect. It's very difficult. The Tombings already know how to speak it. So they, go, they get their degree and they go back to India. So we support them. It's spreading the light. But we, as a literally, and our church happens to be literally on a hill, we are to be the light to our community and to all the world. It's a corporate witness. And that's very powerful. It's very misunderstood. Now, each of us has the responsibility of letting our light shine in our particular sphere. Tomorrow morning, many of you will go to work at address A, B, or C. I will not be physically there. You are responsible with representing Christ as the light of the world in that sphere. I will go other places as a pastor. You won't be there physically with me. We each go to different places and have different responsibilities, but it is one light. It's one light shining everywhere. And the import of this passage is that we are to have a corporate witness as a group, as a church with a capital C throughout the world, irrespective of denomination, and as a church with a little c here as a particular denomination of the Presbyterian Church in America. We are to have a witness and a blazing light wherever we are placed. And that's one of the hallmarks of John Calvin's theology, this idea of heavenly vocation. If you're called to be a garbage man, it's a perfectly acceptable way to earn a living. It's a very hard way to make a living. You can glorify God doing it. And if you're a Christian, you have no choice but to glorify God doing it. Even though we might think of it as an unglorious profession, a person in that place, that's their vocation, may have been given that as a ministry, for lack of a better term, and they are to shine as lights there. It's not easy. As a pastor, people expect me to be a certain way. And when I'm around, surprise, 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 they talk differently. They do. I can tell when people are putting on their pastor speak. They they say certain things. They not say other things. Perfectly understandable. That's the way it should be with all of you, too. Because I'm the same. Same God, same sins, same need of atonement. 
just in a physically different place and in an officially different office with different responsibilities. But the same way people put on pastor speak when I'm around, they should be putting on Christian speak when you're around. When they see you come into the room, they should realize, oh, okay, maybe we should tone it down because here he comes and, you know, doesn't like that kind of talk. Oh, here she comes and something different about her. She's not like us. She's not going to want to do the gossip or anything. So they should be different. So when you enter a room, people should be noticing you. Not because you come in with guns blazing. That's one of the problems we have in our world. We come in with guns blazing and people think that Christians are obnoxious. And a number of Christians are obnoxious. And we're not to be. We're to be gentle. We're to be gentle and kind and live upright lives. But when we enter a room, they should say, okay, there's some light here now. And darkness does not like light. They can't coexist together. So when you enter, you need to consciously and intentionally be trying to shine God's light. And when we each do that as an individual, then our corporate witness actually takes place. And people then begin to say, oh, he or she goes to Middlesex Presbyterian, or he or she goes to this church or that church, and they do things a little bit differently up there. They're a strange group of people. They don't join in with us in these raucous type of celebrations. They're a little bit off. They don't go for all of these things that we go for. That's what's supposed to happen. That's what Christ is driving at. And what he's really driving at is then he's, he's setting the stage, he's setting the table for them, and then he gives us these, as we've seen, these brutally difficult commandments to obey. They're hard. That's one of the things I've been trying to stress to you each week. The Christian life is not for the weak. It's for the meek, but certainly not the weak. In order to live as a Christian, you really have got to have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. Because if you try to do it in your own strength, you'll break your back. You'll just crumble. It's just too difficult. It's hard enough with the Spirit because we wage war, not with the weapons of this war. Murder. None of us wants to be a murderer. But by way of review, how many of us have said, you fool? How many of us as Christians are in the habit of speaking harshly, nasty, with anger, with vindictiveness? Hmm. If you're angry with, with your brother without cause, you're in danger of judgment. If you say to your brother, Raka, which is an ancient term of abuse, You'll be in danger of the council. But if you say, whoever says you fool will be in danger of hellfire. Did you get that? When was the last time you called somebody a fool? Even in your heart. You don't have to say it out loud. When was the last time you called somebody a fool? If so, you're in danger of hellfire. Hellfire is nasty stuff. It doesn't go out. The fire is never put out. It burns. So Jesus says. That's what Jesus says. Where the spirit never dies and the fire is never quenched. So we do well to be very careful with the names we call each other. And we do well to point these things out to our children and our grandchildren. Hey, that's, 
It's not a matter of not saying nice things to people. It's a matter of it's a command of Christ and he wants your heart, kiddo. And then he goes on. Adultery in the heart. Nobody of, none of us wants to be an adulterer. Then Jesus points out, even if a man or conversely a woman looks at a member of the opposite gender in an unseemly manner, you've committed adultery in your heart. And God sees it. So you see, God's not just after the physical act. Because remember, the Pharisees had said, if you don't get caught dead smack in the middle of the sin, you're pretty much good to go. Jesus is saying, "Mm -mm. God sees everything. You can hide from the Pharisees. You can hide from the church session. You can hide from the pastor. But you'll never hide from me. I see into your heart. And that's what Christ is after. And he goes on to marriage quickly on the heels of the adultery. And remember, what does Jesus say with regard to the adultery? If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And we pointed out that that's not to be taken literally. Why are we not to take that literally? The sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. One of the aspects of that sixth commandment is that we're supposed to take care of our bodies. Not allowed to cut off your hand. It's against the rules. But Jesus is saying, if you're sinning in this way and you stop it, it's going to hurt. Easy to sin. Anybody can do it. That's the whole point of this this passage of the Sermon on the Mount. Sin is unacceptable in God's sight. We must live for God. We must live for God. And if we're going to live for God, we had best be ready to pay the price. Because quitting sin hurts. It's not easy. If it was easy, each and every one of us would be more successful at it. How did you do with your sin life this week? Was it a struggle? Certainly it was. And as I said, if it was easy, we all would be making more progress in our individual and progressive sanctification. And if it was easy, we would be making more progress as a congregation in our corporate sanctification and progress. It's not easy. The Pharisees had made it very easy for a man to divorce his wife. And Christ says, look, you can only divorce for one reason. Sexual immorality. Remember, I told you that uh, crazy law from the Talmud where one authoritative rabbi had made a judicial ruling and said, if a man is upset with his wife's cooking, he can give her a certificate of divorce. That's written in the Jewish Talmud. It's there. I'm not making it up. Nah, you burn the hamburgers. See you later. There's not enough soup. There's not enough salt in the soup. See you later. Goodbye. You know, I don't like microwave fish. I wanted it broiled. See you later. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Once you make that vow, you're in covenant with that man. You're in covenant with that woman. And the implicature is, if you're going to marry somebody, you would best be sure. Because it's a lifelong commitment. Till death do you part means till death do you part unless this occurs. And we pointed out that this phrase translated sexual immorality in the New King James, it's, it's not the best translation of that word. There are other aspects to this that are a little more widespread. I personally, and this is a, each pastor makes their call, and we're 
quite frankly, it's asked here in the Presbytery of the Ascension about uh, physical abuse. I personally think that, uh, well, you know how I feel about uh, women beaters. I think that, or child beaters, they're the lowest persons on the earth. And I personally think that if a man is abusing his, his wife, that he has broken covenant with her and that she has every right to, to leave him at that point because it's a, it's a horrific crime. You don't have to commit sexual immorality, uh, technically adultery, to have a horrible reputation in the community that brings disgrace upon the church and upon uh, your spouse by lewd type of behavior that goes up to the line but doesn't cross it, that would fall into the purview of that as well. And then we get to O's. And Jesus is pointing out that Pharisees had this ingenious way of saying, well, if you don't use God's covenantal name, if you don't say Yahweh, you're, you can break the contract. Just don't say that word. Swear by Jerusalem. Swear by your head. Swear by the temple. Swear by your wife's good name. Anything but that, but his name. And you can get out of the contract. And Jesus is saying, forget about that. So it's harkening back to Psalm 15. Who can ascend to your holy hill? One of the parts of that is, he who keeps his word to his own hurt. If you say, yes, I'm going to do this. Ah, it's a covenant. It's a contract. You better do it unless you're really providentially hindered. Couldn't get to work on time because I was in a car crash. Okay. Couldn't get to work just because I didn't want to come and slept in. Not okay. Certain things are out of our control, but the things that are within our control, if we say we're going to do them, we must. This is the religion of the heart. And then all these other things. And then, as last week, we got to the, the hardest thing. The hardest thing. Loving your enemies. As I pointed out, many of us, not very loving even to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of us are not loving, very loving to our own family members. Sad to say, there are many parents in the world who aren't very loving or affectionate to their own children, and vice versa. As I pointed out, if we have difficulty loving our fellow Christians, if we have difficulty loving the mother who gave us birth or the father who has provided for us or the children that God has given us, then how much success do you think we're actually going to have in loving our enemies? The answer is zip not a zilch. But the you here, Jesus again, every one of these yous is plural. Except where he's obviously talking about an individual. A church can't commit adultery. You understand that. It has to be an individual committing adultery. But when he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, every one of those to you is in the plural. He's talking to the people of God. And when he gets here to loving your enemies, when he says, love your enemies, the your is plural. So the presupposition is that their church will have enemies. Why will the church have enemies? Because the church acts differently than the world. How does the world know that? Because the individual members of the church are fundamentally different from their neighbors. And see, this is where we get into the mystery of the Trinity. It's Trinity Sunday. One God in three persons. And we see the people of God. 
It's one church, many different persons, different personalities, different spiritual gifts, different interests, but the one light shines through us all. You ready to do these things? Are you ready to accept your birthright? What does Jesus say? If you love those who love you, what reward have you? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Verse 47, that should haunt us. What have we done more than others? So many of us with regard to our Christian life have set the bar so very low. But Jesus sets the bar very high. You shall be perfect. Just as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Did you get that? Perfect. Now, we know that none of us will perfectly obey God's law in this life. You're going to violate His law before dinner. And so will I. You might pass dinner up. But no mere person since the fall is able to keep God's law perfectly, but we all sin daily in thought, word, and deed. The word perfect there means whole, complete, and in relation to us, mature. So the question we have to ask today is, are we willing to live for God? Are we willing, as a people and as individuals within that covenant, to work toward maturity? Are we willing to pay the price and be different than the world, to stick out like a sore thumb and be willing to take the abuse that will come our way if we seek to live godly? We have two choices. The answer is yes. The answer is no. There, is no, there are no maybes available here to us. I pray that each of us says yes. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord our God, we thank you for the privilege of being your people. We acknowledge that it is a difficult thing, but a loving thing to do. We ask that you would grant us the grace, power, and unction of your spirit to do just that this week. In Christ's precious name, amen.